Nice. So, Steve, I would like to start this episode with some bragging, if that's okay. okay. Yes, always. Ladies and gentlemen, if you happen to follow me on the Instagrams, where I spend an embarrassingly large amount of time, you already <laughs> know that I am a prolific sourdough baker. And if I make my standard batch, which is an 800-gram batch of, of sourdough, it makes two loaves, and we don't eat both of those loaves as a family of four before one of them goes stale and gross. Right. Fun. So what I did is I, I separately purchased this nonstick mini cake or mini loaf pan that makes eight tiny loaves of whatever. You can do mini cakes. You can do mini breads. And I didn't think much of that. But then I had those two pieces of information in my head, and they started talking to each other. And so now I make <laughs> a single loaf of sourdough, and I make these mini loaves. And the thing about the mini loaves is that uh, you know it, it's a perfect size. They're like three inches by an inch and a half by maybe two inches tall. Perfect size for a single sandwich, right? I have a 14-year-old son who will eat three of them as ham and cheese sandwiches. And so we go through the bread faster, right? Which is great, you know. Uh, except now I've gotten fun with it. So I've started stuffing them with cheese and with garlic powder, which, of course, is garlic powder that I made by dehydrating my own garlic and <laughs> pureeing it up, right? Because I'm super fucking fancy. I made ham and cheese stuffed sourdough individual little buns they're about 110 gram batch buns uh and they are a goddamn delight they are the best thing <laughs> i have made in a long time and i'm super proud of myself so the ham and cheese is in them already I, yeah i was going for like a pinwheel kind of thing but the problem is is that the way that sourdough rises you sort of have to score the top to make sure that it's not going to rise all wonky and some of them sort of burst because of that because the dough itself gets pretty thin the amount of uh, stretching that I have to do to be able to get the fillings in. So they're not the prettiest things in the world, uh, but they are really, really tasty. So They sound delicious. Yeah. A million years ago, at my very first job, my boss realized that I had some sort of a natural talent and for some reason, a desire to keep working in restaurants. And he took me aside and he said, Randall, you could be really good at this and you could go far if you could just learn to keep your mouth shut. If you're listening to this, you'll know I took part of that advice. So, ladies and gentlemen, if, if you are interested in seeing this and other wacky experiments, some which <laughs> succeed and some which fail, at my house, go to Instagram, look up Chef Ben Randall, that's me. And that's where you're going to find all of that kind of stuff. Also, I don't have a picture of this yet, but uh, just moved all of my food plants outside. Oh, this nice. This past week and, like, yesterday, which is part of the weekend. So, my all of my tomatoes are outside, all of both of my... All three of my peppers are outside, both types of cucumbers and my zucchini are all outside now. Very nice. Um, we I planted three zucchini seeds that we got from our um, seed library here in town, which is just free seeds to anybody who wants them, and they just request that you um, try to bring back more seeds if yeah. you actually get stuff, you know. So uh, we, we ended up with three zucchini seeds, and I planted them. I didn't think any of them were going to sprout, and then saw something in one of my little uh, starter cups, and I was like, oh, maybe this is something. And then sure enough, and then Kayla, to try to figure out if that's what it was, watched the uh, time lapse of a zucchini plant. And then she was like, Stephen, I'm afraid of the zucchini plant. Um, she's like, "That I should not have watched the stop motion. It was terrifying. They, they move. Yeah. And it, the of all the plants that we have, because we did some tomatoes and some onions um, and some pepper plants, various pepper plants, the zucchini um, looks the most... Uh, they're... 
the most like an egg from Alien. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Or the fake Italian version of Aliens conta- uh, called Contamination, I think. Um, yep. That. Uh, that Kayla likes to watch as well. So, uh, I mean, they look, they look rubbery. They look kind of fake. They're, they're getting larger. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a scary plant cause it does move rather quickly. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. So how many zucchini plants do you have? Just one or just one, because this is an experiment this year. That's an heirloom variety of zucchini. That's all, it's so dark green. It's almost black and it's just oh. called that. It's just called black zucchini. So what we're doing this year, my wife and I, she, she wants to shade the chicken coop. In some fashion. And we were thinking about like a retractable roof thing. We were thinking about panels we could put on top or whatever. But I am growing. I'm starting a pickle empire, right? So I'm growing two different varieties of heirloom cucumber. And I'm growing these zucchinis because zucchini is one of these vegetables that we eat at the house pretty consistently. So I offered to my wife, I was like, the leaves on these things are pretty broad. Why don't we train them up the side of the chicken run and then over the top and the leaves will shade the chicken coop. So the only thing I need to do is make sure that I'm not, that the chickens are not able to peck through at the stalk because they'll kill everything above it. But in my head, it is going to be gorgeous in like a hobbit kind of way. Like it's going to be this (laughs) integrated plant system where zucchini, obviously they prefer to sort of like go along the ground because the, the zucchinis themselves that grow are heavy, but the plant, knows that like the plant can support a zucchini that is suspended same thing with cucumber same thing with yellow squash same thing with butternut squash like even winter squashes the stems are strong enough to support that plant that the the thing so that'll be that'll be interesting to watch nice Uh, they'll all the leaves will be fine but the zucchinis will dangle into the cage and that will just feed the uh the chickens um, well, it's it's shop cloth. It's not like chicken wire, so there's no way they're going to actually get in oh, there okay. because the, it's it's half an inch square openings. You know, there's there's not enough space for them to get in. And I'll keep an eye on them, make sure that the blossoms themselves don't end up inside the run. But after about two feet high, the chickens just can't get any higher than that. Like they they don't really they could fly, but they're super lazy, so they don't. And uh, I'm not worried about them attacking that stuff once it's over about two feet high. Um. Okay, a couple things. First of all, there's something I will send you or or get to you somehow as well, just in case you you want it for some reason. Um, we have a sandbox for the dogs um, in the in the front yard, front corner of the yard. Um, and then I also, I got one of those canvas sails uh, that's a shade thing. Sure. Um, and the first one I got, the shape was kind of odd and it also wasn't, um, it's not really, it would get puddles on it because I couldn't put it at an angle. Um, so oh, I, gotcha. I got a different one that's a little bit more permeable, so it still gives them shade, but the water will go through it. So I've got the other one that I will get to you somehow. And then you can, if you want to put it up, you can, and you don't have to, but it's just in my basement. It's, it, and nice. it's not, it's not huge, but you know, it's just a, one of those canvas sail shades. Um, and then the other thing is remember when we were talking about pumpkins and how there was that, um, farm that had, uh, created those Frankenstein molds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want you, if when you get a zucchini, to get one of your jello molds and put the zucchini in there. And uh, if you have a smallish one, and try to get it trapped in there so that you have a molded zucchini somehow. There's an antique store not far from me. It's literally walking distance uh, that I have not checked out. And I really want to 
And it would be worth my time to go over there and see if they have any of those old, like, brass jello molds that yeah. I could, if they have two that are the same. Like, do you think I could grow a zucchini that looks like a salmon? Right. <laughs> right, that kind of thing. I would love that. that. I don't amazing. know. If, I don't know if the zucchini itself, because obviously a pumpkin then wouldn't need to be exposed to the sun. So I don't know if yeah. the zucchini itself would need to be exposed to the sun, or if you wouldn't be able to because you harvest them right when they're young. I found out recently. We talked about that. Um, yeah. uh, that uh, maybe you have to harvest them too soon. I don't know if you'd be able to find a jello mold that was small enough. But um, even just one jello mold, if you put like. Uh, if you clamp a board or something on the other side, maybe you'd get like a, a fish that was flat on one side. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> a, like a relief model of a fish. Yes. Fun with zucchini <laughs> with Ben and Steve. All right. Um, it's sad news. You know, I planted six different varieties of heirloom tomatoes and one of them just did not make it. Oh, uh, no. Indigo rose. Um, something about the... Uh, greenhouse that i set up in the basement something about when i moved it outside something about soil composition i don't know what it is but that one particular uh tomato did not make it everybody else is doing fine right but that one did not work so the pot that i had it in i had some i I brought some jalapeno seeds home from work one day and i chucked those in there and they are doing great they're going fucking wild now this is this is not um as far as i know this is a legit gardening thing um and not just a sexual thing so i'm going to ask you this question I did not do this myself, but um, we're, this is gardening as an experiment this year for us. Did you harden your plants before you took them outside? So no, and also I don't know what that means. <laughs> so my understanding from what I read, which was very brief because I was like, I'm not going to do that, <laughs> was uh, <laughs> that you start to um, wean them off your light and you start them on um, giving them some some time in diffused light in order to get them ready for um i mean did you leave your lights on 24 hours when they were downstairs no i would turn them on when i got up in the morning okay five something and then i would turn them back off in the afternoon the evening so uh, um it has something to do with getting them ready for diffused sunlight versus direct sunlight and then the hours or whatever i I didn't look into it too much because i was like this is too much work for an experimental year for us um, I mean, I guess I did do it then, because what I did is we had an opaque plastic sheeting that went over the chicken coop over the winter, just as a wind block. And it was it was not clear, but it was not like black or blue or something like that. So it wasn't going to block all light. And what I did is when I put the tomatoes out, I put cages over them, like the tomato cages that they used to climb up. And I wrapped those in that opaque plastic sheeting. And then zip tied them closed, but I left the top open. So I guess I did it accidentally. What I wanted to do was protect the seedlings from birds and like wind and such. But I bet I gave it diffuse light also. Yeah, I didn't know. I just didn't know if that might have anything to do with the indigo tomato. I honestly, not being a this being my first year at gardening, I I have no idea. Um, I'm surprised that we what we have out there is still alive. I'm expecting something to die at some point um, due to me overwatering or underwatering or or some such um, well and i am tempted there's a, a couple of really nice garden stores near me so i am tempted to go see if anybody is also growing those to just grab one and, and plant it you know because oh, yeah. i was really looking forward to that particular tomato that one and the tigerella uh i'm really looking forward to san marzano's are doing great the midnight snacks are doing great but cherry tomatoes you can't stop cherry tomatoes like they grow <laughs> they'll grow on concrete so whatever but i am tempted to see if anybody's doing that or maybe i'll find just another variety that i hadn't seen before yeah that i could i could put in that one's place i do so i brought these uh plastic buckets home from work 
and I drilled holes in the bottom of them and uh, put river stones in there, and then I put the dirt on top so I'd have good drainage and such. And I still have two of those left with nothing in them right now. And I, I could just grow an acre of fucking tomatoes this year if I wanted to. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we're excited about our stuff uh, um, because, I mean, it's like I said, it's, it's brand new for us. My neighbor gave me some onion starts that she'd been given a whole, like, flat of onion starts. Nice. And um, wasn't going to be able to plant all of them. And, and uh, uh, she also said that, so the guy that used to own the house here that we're in was a gardener, but more of like a flower gardener. Um, and uh, she said that she had learned from him. And anyone that's a gardener, please double check me on this. Um, uh, she said that she'd learned from him that you're not supposed to say thank you when you're given a plant, um, to, to a gardener, uh, but, really? but there's, there's nothing like break a leg. That's an equivalent. I guess you could always, you could say appreciate it, but you can't say thank you, or you're not supposed to say thank you for some, for some reason. So it's either because he was a weird British guy or it's a gardening thing. I don't know. So if anyone has heard anything like that, please let me know. And, uh, the rationale behind it and what you're supposed to say instead. I'm going to just... I don't know. Uh, turn my I'm going to use off. this break in the action to actually introduce the show now that we're 15 minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome or welcome back to In the Weeds with Ben Randall. I am Ben Randall. And I'm Stephen Cadwell. And sorry in advance, but you're going to get like constant updates about gardening from myself and, and probably from Steve. Especially because like now I am fully experienced in three different kinds of cucumber pickling methods right so i can make a, just a straight up dill pickle like you would wedge up and put on a chicago style hot dog i can make a sweet bread and butter pickle with these just glorious little onions in them and i learned how to make israeli pickles which are a salt cured pickle that take like it's a complicated method in as much as it's really really simple but it's there's a lot of steps to it where you wash the cucumbers and then you mix them with pickling spices and mustard seeds and black peppercorns and garlic and you put them into a jar with what is a lot of salt but then you <laughs> let them sit out at room temperature for a while then you put them in the fridge for a while and i'm gonna see if i can figure out how to hot pack them so that i can like preserve preserve them at room temperature but really no joke like i have an heirloom gherkin and i have an heirloom cucumber called a uh, snow fancy Winter fancy, something like that. And I have four plants each. And if I know cucumbers, they're prolific. So they're going to grow a fuck ton of cucumbers. I don't eat a ton of pickles, but if I am going to start a business selling things that are preserved, there is no better way than to have a fleet of pickles ready to go. You know, so <laughs> a flight, you're going to hear a lot pickles. about this. Pardon? A flight of pickles. There you go. Pickle flight. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't know. Is am I am I really gonna get off? Of, so I, I'm in this position where I'm a little too comfy, right? So am I gonna get off my ass and actually start up a side hustle? I don't know, but I've sort of tricked myself into doing it anyway because now I have these eight cucumber plants that are gonna be firing off a lot of cucumbers this summer. I'll have to figure out something to do with them. Yeah. Well, and you, uh, the summer's a great time for you to be doing that, yeah. right? Yeah. Because your your workload is a little lower. Yes. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you're new to the show, welcome. Um, I am a trained chef. I've been in the industry for 30 years. God, it'll be 31 years this year. And uh, currently, I run the food service for an all-scratch private school, which sounds, if you're in the industry, it sounds uh, weird, right? I've been accused of being a lunch lady, and uh, <laughs> generally, my response to that has been, stop being so jealous, because I am off on the weekends. I'm home by three in the afternoon every day, and I don't work summers. It's fucking glorious. But... For my company, and this is a symptom of COVID, 
Uh, this is our largest sales year we've ever had in the history of the company, right? I have nothing to do with that. But what is happening is that your bigger companies, your Aramarks, your um, Compasses, your Meridians, right? Flick even are offloading their smaller properties to focus on their stadiums, hospitals, office buildings, things like this, universities. And my company, which specializes in smaller niche schools, we consider ourselves a boutique food service operation. We're snapping them right up. So there's a chance I'm going to be traveling this summer to help open up locations, uh, which would be fine, right? It's a little bit of a burden on my wife, and I'm going to have to talk to my boss about certain things that I need to be here in Chicago for, but like, could be traveling to help opening shops, which would be rad. Yeah. That, that, uh, that's great for the company as well. Um, there was yeah. a, another company, I won't name it, uh, but uh, in, in Chicago there that a couple of my friends worked for. And uh, it was a similar, I mean, they, they had a lot of small accounts and then someone sort of took over uh, maybe sales or whatever. It was promoted in sales and they started, they they landed like this huge account and they got in trouble from their higher ups because they said, we don't, listen, we don't want those accounts. Yeah. Because you lose, if that's all you have, you lose two of those and you're bankrupt. But yep. but if you have all the smaller accounts, it, you know, you're not dead if you lose a couple of them because, you know, you, you have all these, even though they're smaller, you have multiple streams of, in, of income versus, you know, if the NBA shuts down for however long, then Airmark takes a huge hit or whatever. Yeah. Oh, diverse assets are the way to go. So I was talking to my dad recently. This isn't even on our list of things to talk about today. My dad is the uh, most involved, hugest fan of baseball you've ever met in your life. <laughs> like baseball is my dad's Star Wars, right? Like dude is a baseball scholar. You ask him about any college baseball team right now, he knows how they're doing and who their star pitcher is and who's out, right? Like dude is an encyclopedia of baseball. <laughs> and they just instituted this year a pitch clock. I don't know if you're aware of this, Steve, but the MLB yes. now has you, – if you're a pitcher, you have a certain amount of time in which to throw that pitch, right? And if you're a batter, you know that thing that batters do where they step out of the box and they adjust their gloves like they've never worn gloves before and they tie their shoe and they make a phone call and they smoke a cigar, <laughs> right? Like all of this preening and prancing yep. around, which I understand is to rattle the pitcher, but it's obnoxious. You can't do that shit anymore. You'll get called out. If you are out of the box too long, you gotta. You can step out of the box. You can shake your shoulders. You can do whatever. You gotta get back in the fucking batter's box. The idea is to shorten baseball games, and it's happened. It's worked. Baseball games are half an hour to forty-five minutes shorter than they were before, and that's not a loss of value for fans. You're seeing an entire nine-inning game at minimum. It's a loss of value for vendors, and so you're right. Your your Aramarks, your compasses, your Meridians, whoever it is who's doing these big. Stadiums, they've pushed back against it, and MLB's like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> you know, you don't yeah. tell us how to run a baseball game. Yeah. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, they want the complaints were that these are too, they're too long and they're too boring, right? For people, yeah. you know, that, that maybe aren't super into baseball. So right. MLB's trying to make some adjustments that are like, we got to cut the fat, um, you know, to get down to like more gameplay, less, uh, you know, interstitial nonsense. Right. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's better for the game, but yeah, not better necessarily for the guy selling nachos. Right. And I would, I would make this claim boldly. So if we have any professional baseball players who listen to the show, fucking thank you for your service, by the way. But also <laughs> if you need to adjust your glove, your batting glove in between every pitch, you need to spend some time learning how to wear a glove. Is this your first fucking day? <laughs> Stop it. 
or if you've or ever put gloves. a glove on, like if you've if you've ever put a glove on, you know how to do it instantly. Like it looks <laughs> like your fucking hand. Jesus, sorry, that's uh, that's my rant. I've, that's always bothered me. Not so much that I really had to care about it, but now I'm like, yeah, get him. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. So again, no part of that has anything to do with what we're talking about. However, there is a Frontier League team called the Chicago Dogs, obviously named after the hot dog, Yes, uh, that play out by the airport here, which is not too far from my house, so you should come by. Those games are the best because it's it's a purer form of baseball. Those guys are making like $18,000 to play. You know they're not playing for the money. You know they're not playing for like the corporate sponsorships. They're not playing for like because uh, glove manufacturers want them to really show off how their gloves go on and go back off. Uh, they are just playing to play and it's a great <laughs> park. Uh, I would say that if we haven't already seen it because of the shorter gameplay, I bet you food at stadiums, which was already expensive is probably more expensive Yeah, because yeah. they have to make that money back somehow, you know? Yeah. Um, yesterday, Kayla and I went to not a ball game, but we did go to the motor city comic con. I think it was motor city comic con. It was in Novi. Nice. Um, I've never been to a comic con. Um, it was a uh, super crowded mall filled with people who were 40% in costume, 30% in costume. Um, uh, but from a distance, we did see Jonathan Frakes and Brent Spiner um, in, in live in person, but we didn't stand in line and pay them for their autographs. I don't have anything against that, but uh, right. um, I have better things to spend my money on. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but uh, we did get – so we waited in this huge line for snacks at the convention center. Um, they had hot dogs. They had pizza. They had soft pretzels. We, Kayla and I just got some French fries because we were kind of on our way out um, after chatting with our friends as we were waiting in line that were there with us. Um, I will say this. The French fries we got at the Carnival uh, when or the, the Vermontville um, Maple Syrup Festival and the French fries there at the convention center – were pretty good fries. They huh. were not, you know, they weren't gross and soggy or anything. Uh, now, the carnival fries, were they had the potatoes right there, so I think they were, you know, uh, julianning them or whatever and, and throwing them in the fryer right there. So that's probably why those were good. But they're also right. very, like, they were they were fair fries. They weren't fries. You, you They weren't, like, restaurant fries. Yeah. Um, I don't know how any of the, any of the rest of the food was, but... Uh, um, at, at the uh, at the Comic Con, but I don't, I can't imagine it was excellent. <laughs> I this is not going to be a revelation to anyone. I'm such a sucker for potatoes, in pretty much any form, right? <laughs> like I'm sitting here thinking, as you're talking about fries, we had uh, baked potatoes for dinner the other day, and I made too many because like I should be able to just say, oh, there's four of us here in the house, I should make four potatoes. I don't do that, <laughs> so we have way too many. But to, for my money, the best French fry is still a baked potato that you then allow to cool completely in the fridge overnight, and then you wedge it up and fry it, because there are so many little crevices and pockets and shit like that that get really super crispy and awesome. That's a great French fry. Yeah. Now, having said that, I made too many of those two. And uh, <laughs> I made potato salad out of those, and it wasn't a revelation necessarily, but that was fucking good. And I, I was not feeling just like a straight mayo potato salad. But we had gone to a Mediterranean place to pick up shawarma and skewers and rice and all this kind of stuff earlier in the week. And I had this tahini sauce laying around and this like spicy cilantro dipping sauce laying around. So I based my potato salad off of that. That was good. So I'm going to need to figure out a way to like 
I'm, I'm going to have to write that out as a recipe. I'm going to have to write like a Mediterranean or North African or something. I don't know, like in quote inspired, because this is definitely not going to be any sort of a traditional recipe, a potato salad that's that, that's based on tahini and cilantro and, and jalapenos and scallions and white onions and all that kind of stuff. Because it was, it I, I was, I knew it was going to be good. It was really good. Nice. Maybe some roasted red peppers in there too. I don't know. I'm I'm late in life. It's not that late in life for us, but uh, at this point nope. in my life, just just uh, starting to uh, get an appreciation for your potato salads and your pasta salads, um, <laughs> things I never ate uh, in my youth. I would say this had the flavor profile more of like a baba ganoush. Have you ever had that? No, but I love the word, and I've uh, I think I've encountered it somewhere, but I don't think I've ever had it. So baba ganoush is roasted eggplants pureed with garlic tahini lemon juice parsley and that's the base recipe you can go wild with it if you want to but this potato salad had a baba ganoush kind of a thing going on and i think i could start there and make it a thing i bet you somebody already has like i don't know why i need to reinvent the wheel i should probably <laughs> just google tahini potato salad and somebody's already doing it probably better than i would <laughs> i hope they've named it baba ganoush there you oh there you go yeah 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 or Papa Ganoush. Yeah, oh, yeah. Pa <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Very infrequently do I say something and crack myself up. <laughs> better ingredients, better ganoush. <laughs> <laughs> the marketing possibilities are endless. <laughs> okay, so. Wow. <laughs> did, you, did you get a chance to look at either of those articles that I sent you? Uh, the James Beard Foundation one I did very briefly. Okay, so let's the other one I just skimmed a little bit, but I want to talk about it because so it's a Greek restaurant. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is this is about the restaurant in Ann Arbor called Angelos. Yes, and I just I don't know anything about it. I I've been in Ann Arbor once. I don't really know the area, but so this after seventy years and a restaurant is closing and it says stirring up a stir of emotions in our Ann Arbor. Excuse me. Um, but here's my question. So. This family, I don't think it's the one person, the the one guy, uh, he said, this is the only job I've ever had, said to the 65-year-old, I've literally been in this building since I was born. So it was um, his family that bought the building where the restaurant is, right? And they've been, he's been running, they've been running this restaurant for 70 years. And uh, here, here's the thing, though. Um, it's not like they're closing because of no one's coming they're not closing be because of any sort of health code or whatever they he agreed to sell to the university of michigan yeah for an enormous amount of money it's like four and a half million dollars yes so here's my thing as a restaurateur that's success right yes it is yeah i mean so if it took you 65 years to earn that four million dollars maybe not but like yeah. as an individual person in a moment and somebody's cutting you a check for four and a half million dollars, that there's no way to say that that's not success. Well, with so if it's four and a half million, I assume that they've turned down the U of M a few times before they agreed. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is like their own terms. He's like he's he's at the age where he's probably ready to retire. He doesn't want to be doing this every day, day in, day out. Right. And with four and a half million dollars, you could move somewhere else if you really wanted to, right? Not to say that we're encouraging people to move out of Ann Arbor, but yeah. No, I mean move the restaurant. You could just move the restaurant <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to a new location and, and you know, you wouldn't have to close it. But, I mean, 65-year-old guy, um, 
you know, four and a half million dollars. Yeah, retire. <laughs> Enjoy your retirement. <laughs> so that that was my whole thing was like if you're a restaurateur and someone's offering you four and a half million dollars, unless you have six million dollars in in debt, <laughs> in which case you're a bad restaurateur or you just started in a really, really expensive location. Um, but that seems like a success. I don't see it. The I mean, the downside is that the restaurant's gone, but otherwise I can't really see a downside. Yeah, there's that. But at the same time, it makes me wonder what the university is going to do with that building, because if it has a completely successful, already built out and operating restaurant in that space, is the university looking at making that a student union that continues to have a restaurant or, or some sort of a food service operation in place? I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but it feels like in that particular location, other than just becoming land barons, I don't know why the University of Michigan would buy that particular building unless they had a plan for it. Right. And it could be demolition and building, you know, a, a, some sort of downtown campus. I don't know where any of these things are located either. Um, <laughs> right. Not knowing the city. So uh, I don't know how close to the university is, but the guy doesn't have any uh, bad feelings toward the, toward no. the university. Um so, so in, uh, in 20 years, if I was 65 years old and I'd been doing the same job for 35 years and someone said, I want to give you four and a half million dollars to stop doing your job, I would be <laughs> like, fuck, yes, I am in. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to take your old, uh, maybe only two story brick building um, yeah. as like, well. But yeah, just just hand over the keys, walk away with this check in your hand. I would be like, well, let's do this tomorrow because the article said that they're going to operate until December. Yeah, I would be like, how about this? You make it four point two five million, and we can do this shit today. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> or the other way around, make it five million. We'll do it today. I mean, and unless Ann Arbor is like super expensive to live in, but I can't imagine that it's more expensive than Chicago. Um, I my guess would be less expensive than Chicago to live in in Ann Arbor. So four and a half million is going to last you a while, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing, too. So we're, my, my company is looking at a school in Michigan, right? Uh, they got a hold of, <laughs> another brag. The head of the school where I am contracted to make the food was at a conference. And a school in Michigan walked right up to him and said, hey, I heard that your food service is awesome. We hate ours. Who do I talk to? That, right off the bat, hugely complimentary to me. And I felt great about that. Uh, the amount of... Because I did some research on that school as I was sending it up to my sales folks. The amount of money you spend to send a child to private school in Michigan, uh, especially this one, or not not even especially, but particularly this one, which is northwest of Detroit a little ways, uh, is like a third of what the people pay to send their kids to the school where I am. Which is, don't get me wrong, not too far from downtown Chicago, right? Cost of living in Michigan must be shockingly cheaper than it is here in chicago yeah. <laughs> which we've just gotten used to in this town yeah but like holy smokes is it a lot cheaper to send your kids to a way high-end private school in michigan than it is in chicago so i can only imagine that yeah four and a half million gets you a long way maybe not in ann arbor proper but also that's the nice thing about cities in michigan but you drive for 10 minutes you are out yeah <laughs> you are out of the city yes uh Unless you're in traffic on 131 in Grand Rapids. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just I, I felt that that was uh, that's the best way. If your restaurant's going to close, that's the best way for it to happen. Yeah. I mean, get somebody to buy you out. That's rad. Yeah. That's the dream <laughs> right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, that and I guess. Yeah. So it, I was going to ask, uh, like, if you, when you're working at the burger joint, like what would what would the number be? for that to be a good deal. I mean, would four and a half million have done it for that place or 
Yeah, I mean, that that's roughly four times their annual income. I don't know what the profit of that place was, but they were doing a little over a million a year. So to make four times that and have it be essentially all profit at one time, fuck yeah, that'd be amazing. And did they own the building or were they renting? They were renting okay. from an absolute garbage landlord. Yeah, a lot of them are. It's not a job. <laughs> landlord, colon, it's not a job. Copyright banana. <laughs> I would like us to next talk about this uh, Prop 12 that we sort of teased yeah, in the last episode. Sure. So this comes, ladies and gentlemen, from Food Safety News, which is, again... A great listserv to be on because some of the stuff is wicked scary and makes you, like, double-check everything you're buying at the grocery store. And some of it is hilarious because the opinions written in these things, be careful. Always <laughs> check the byline and make sure that there's it's news or opinion because the opinion stuff is really, really heavily, you know, leaning one way or the other. This is just regular straight news. Uh, Supreme Court Prop 12 ruling favors California deciding what pork can be sold in the state. Steve, you, you read this through? Yes. In a 5-4 to four decision, the Supreme Court majority said the type of meat sold in California does not create any constitutional problems for the state's voter-approved Proposition 12. This decision goes against the U.S. pork industry while favoring the nation's animal activist community. All right, so, what? A short story on this. Prop 12 in California just states, if you want to sell pork in California, we need to make sure you're not abusing your animals, that they're being treated in a certain way, that they have a certain amount of room to move, things like this. Mm -hmm. And of course, the U.S. pork producers were like, fuck you, we like our animals in cages so tight they can't even barely breathe. And California was like, mm, nah, the, we, we put this to a vote, and the voters said it's cool. And the pork producers said, we're taking this to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court went, fuck you, California can do what they want. I think that was the exact language of that ruling. <laughs> Uh, quote from the article, for the pork industry, the Supreme Court decision is a significant loss. Agriculture groups said that if the California law was upheld, it would not be long before other states adopted separate requirements, making it difficult for producers to meet a maze of requirements. Now, they say maze of requirements. When I read through this, it all seems, at least on my side, and I'm not a large-scale pork producer, to be fairly common sense, here's how you don't harm your animals kind of stuff. Yeah. I, and and it's not like they're uh, um, it makes a criminal offense and civil violation sell whole pork meat in California unless the pig comes from uh, unless the pig that it uh, comes from is born to a sow housed within 24 square feet of space in conditions that allow a sow to turn around without touching an enclosure. That's not a huge amount of space, so no. it's not like they're saying you have to have free range uh, pigs. You have to give them a whole barn each. Or anything like that. It's 24 square feet of space, per, you know, per pig, which is still not a huge, you know, it's not not a one bedroom apartment. Right, 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 right. And it, it is interesting that they added, and I'm happy that they added the, uh, when it turns around, it uh, does not have to touch the enclosure. Because 24 square feet of space could be, you know, 12 feet high. Yeah, <laughs> they would yeah. still They would still be within the structure of that unless you write it. Like, a, a pig is between four and six feet long right so that's that's again that's only six foot square that's yeah that's enough for you or i to lay down in without touching the sides but that's that's a prison cell that's not that big of a right of a place you had mentioned that it was a wild mix of justices who voted for this thing 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know where, you know, you you can pretty clearly delineate, I guess, left or right, but I don't know yeah. what that means in terms of, like, uh, farming or uh, or animal rights. But, yeah, just the, 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 majest- the, just- the majestices, the justices in the majority, <laughs> um, Neil Gorsuch, Clarence Thomas, and uh, Amy uh, Coney Barrett, um, along yeah. with Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, um were the ones in the majority, which meant that um, some of the others, or the, the, all the others, were were against it, and uh, that includes the chief justice and our newest justice. Uh, so yeah, I was just surprised at the at the spread there. I'm I'm presuming that means that Clarence Thomas is getting under the table <laughs> gifts and donations and trips from Big Beef. Yes, <laughs> and so take, taking a swipe at pork is in his best interest to yeah. continue getting. You know, money that he's not reporting to the taxpayers of this country, which is a clear violation of Supreme Court ethics, uh, which it turns out there is no written Supreme Mm -hmm. Court ethics because fuck us, I guess. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's it's yeah, it's more sad than funny, but that's true. Um. Well, and I guess for this decision as well, they weren't really, they, they didn't, it, it was, uh, the, the welfare of the animal was really outside of the purview of what they were looking at, right? It yeah. was whether or not this law ran afoul of the interstate commerce laws. Right. Right. And um, whether this was um, putting an undue burden on out uh, uh, producers of pork outside the state, requiring them to... Um, adhere to California's rules and they basically said no they can still sell pork everywhere else so it's fine if California says that if you're going to sell it in California because they still have a choice whether or not to follow those rules they just have to if they're going to sell in California so um now if I remember correctly California by itself is the fifth largest economy in the world so the pork producers are not wrong in considering that this could be a significant hit to them However, two things are likely to happen happen simultaneously, one of which is they're not wrong. There are other states that will be like, fucking California did it. Let's just copy-paste their law, you know, have a vote on it, and see if our voters also want to only be able to buy pork that is raised more humanely. And there are a number of states who are going to just have that happen. So the pork producers are probably not wrong in that fear. The other thing is that as soon as they start, Building new enclosures specifically to continue being able to produce pork for California, they'll they'll be doing it anyway. So then when other states hop in, they'll be like, well, I guess we also have pork that we produce for Vermont and for, you know, Iowa or whatever. I don't know. And uh, those things will already be in place. So it'll be a burden for a minute, but they'll get used to it. They'll yeah. It'll eventually just, I'm hoping, affect a change in how pork is raised across the nation. Yeah. It's what has happened with the automotive industry. Like uh, California emissions became standard yeah. because, you know, California passed laws because of the huge smog problem in the, what, the 60s, 50s, 60s, 60s yeah. and 70s. There was, then they passed laws in terms of emissions on vehicles. And that just became standard because uh, 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 the auto industry wasn't going to think, well, we're not going to do two different emissions for, right. you know, that's just we're going to retool the line once and that's the emissions we're going to put on a car. And uh, everyone is going to benefit from, uh, although I'm sure they weren't 
using the word benefit, uh, but everyone's going to benefit from, you know, less smog because we're going to make sure everything has a catalytic converter or whatever. Um, so And it'll likely be a retrofit situation, right? So the pork being produced in California for sale in California, they'll retrofit those facilities to have the larger enclosures, right? And then the ones in Texas where they're like, fuck the pigs, we don't give a shit, we just want really cheap pork, those will stay the same. And then as farms in states that enact this rule have to change over, it'll just, yeah, it'll just start popping up. Yeah. And they'll already have the infrastructure in place. I don't know how much transport is actually across state lines is actually happening because you can raise pigs fucking anywhere. Um, as we saw with those feral hogs, man, they'll eat anything and they'll yeah. go, they'll live in any sort of a situation. So a huge state like California, I bet you most of the pork that's, in California is raised in California. Same thing with Texas. Same thing with like your Kansas, Oklahoma, Iowa, right? Like they're I mean, like your family has that that hog farm in Iowa, right? Yes, they did. My my grandpa raised hogs in Iowa. Yeah, um, and and they were they were I guess maybe considered free range. He didn't have a huge herd. He had some some uh, cattle, some pigs. Um, but not not you know thousands of head or anything like that, and uh, they were always they were out in the in the pen. Um, I I believe that factory farming, you know, uh, agribusiness or whatever. There, there's yeah. some of that is just evil, and and to be clear, this isn't the most humane. This law doesn't say you have to raise a pig in the most humane way possible. It's just more humane. Uh, yeah. Because it doesn't say they have to have so you know, in, unlike prison, they don't have to have so many um, hours out in the yard in the sunlight and fresh air. They are probably stuck in that twenty-four square foot pen, you know, maybe their entire life. But my question about the, uh, um, yes, I'm sure they're raising um, cattle and and uh, hogs in California. But when we were talking about all the uh, stuff with. During the pandemic, with the closures of, and then more recently with the cleaning of, um, process, uh, meat processing plants. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, those seem to be pretty much uh, the big ones anyway that that produce stuff for the majority of the country. Aren't weren't there like three of them? So there's three companies. Yeah, but we like Cargill, JBL. I forget what the other one is, but their their facilities can only handle just so much. And we're a pretty hungry country. So I think they, they are fairly centralized as far as processing goes. I don't know about the farms themselves. OK, I just want that's about, a whole separate thing. Yeah, I was just wondering about the processing because I thought like when the one shut down, I thought it was like, oh, no, prices are going to go through the roof because this one meat processing plant yeah. went down. Um, I mean, that and used to be Chicago, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chicago's a meatpacking city for the longest. Uh, but no, we, you're right. We did see prices go up. But just like with eggs, we also found that that was gouging. Yes. So uh, you, you, what are you going to do about that? Yeah. Price of eggs still has not really come down. And uh, that's the thing about that's the thing about inflation. That's the thing about like, oh, this thing has happened. So, you know, this avian flu and so prices have to go up. When things are good, prices don't go back down. Right. The, the producers are like, wait a minute. These fucking suckers will still pay eight dollars for a dozen eggs so yeah let's just keep them up there you know and i just saw an article not too long ago it was like the 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 prices of eggs should be should be back down like there's no reason anymore for it to be yeah the way it is um so we'll see if and when that actually happens but uh um deregulation at its finest yeah <laughs> um so yeah i think the i think the law is is 
um, in the California law, if that were to become the law of the land, even if it's not official, I think that's a good thing for, uh, you know, it, because it is more humane. Like I said, it's not yeah. the most humane, but it is more humane than some of these uh, companies or, uh, you know, agribusinesses were uh, some of the conditions they were keeping their their livestock in. So um, I would bet producers will see an instantaneous loss of profit because they are able to raise fewer animals because they have to give them more space, right? And or they will have to buy more land to spread the pigs out to be able to to have more animals, right? So that's a different way that they're losing money. However, in the long run, you're going to see healthier animals. You're going to see fewer yes. animals having to be destroyed because of illness and injury. It will probably balance out. It'll take a minute, but it'll probably balance out. Yeah. I would think so. I mean, but the the fewer antibiotics that we are pumping into our uh, livestock, the better for everybody. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of bonuses uh, just for you know existence on the planet that are unrelated to the stockholders, um, you know, dividend at the end of the year. So, yeah. Well, and this isn't like the legislation itself isn't just some feel good hippy dippy thing about like we have to have happy animals, right? Like it's a sincere health concern about. Yeah. What you're saying, the long-term effects of constantly pumping these animals full of antibiotics and such, it is also a feel-good, hippy-dippy thing about we want the animals to be happy. But, like, personally, I've come to terms with the fact that I kind of don't care about how animals feel. Like, they're tasty, so chickens <laughs> and ducks and pigs and goats and, and, and cows are useful to me in a flavor sense. But I don't really care about how they feel about it. However, having said that, they shouldn't be sick and injured and crammed together in a box all day either, right? Yeah. Yes. Now, having visited my grandparents' farm a lot of times when I was growing up and having stood face-to-face -face with a cow, um, I kind of cared how it felt. I was glad it wasn't angry. Hmm. Because I didn't want to get trampled, so yeah, yeah. you know, um, at, at least at least I don't want the animals to be angry because I don't want them yeah. to come get me. Well, and I've stood face to face with horses, pigs, cows, goats. So that's the thing. Like you look at a goat, that goat's got a plan. That goat wants to steal your car, <laughs> right? You look at a cow. People say, "Oh, cows have these deep, beautiful, soulful eyes." No, they're stupid. The cow is an intensely <laughs> stupid animal. There's nothing going on in there. Does that mean that, like, it deserves to live in misery and then get eaten? No. I mean, it's not curing cancer anytime soon unless it turns out that you can squeeze uh, cancer cure out of its, you know, bone marrow or something. But, like, it shouldn't be mistreated either. It's not really good for much other than what we can extract from it, you know? It's, it's a dumb animal. But it, again, shouldn't be tortured before we then grill it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm not for animal abuse, but I also sort of don't care about the animal's emotional state. I guess that's where I <laughs> that's where I live. Yeah, I also got this that got got the feeling that the cow I was uh, staring down wasn't the smartest animal in the world, but that just <laughs> made me all the more happier that it wasn't angry because yeah, I would I would rather have an intelligent person holding a bat than a dumb person holding a bat. Um, Fair, yeah, because I I feel like the dumb one is more likely to swing it at my head, and maybe that's incorrect. Maybe the smart one, well, yeah, the smart one's going to swing at my legs. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, anyway. Right. Uh, I've always said that about Batman villains. Like, the Batman story itself would be a lot shorter, because Batman doesn't kill. Uh, if he just, like, kneecapped everybody. <laughs> like, try to escape from Arkham now. I blew both your kneecaps off. Yeah. 
right? Same thing with Jedi. Jedi bad guys always get away because the Jedi are just so allergic to going, oh, I got you down. I'm going to cut one of your legs off right now. <laughs> you know, have fun hopping away, Darth Hoppy, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, it it doesn't matter as much in the Star Wars universe when they can just replace it with a robot leg. I guess there's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Regardless, I want to see a lot more legs getting chopped off, people getting hit in the kneecaps with baseball bats. Like, incapacitate your bad guys. You don't have to kill them. But definitely, <laughs> if you're a smart cow, hit your farmer in the kneecap with a baseball bat. Yes. That's, yeah. where, that's where we went with that. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. You're right, though. A smart cow would be pretty scary. Yeah. I that's... still wouldn't feel any guilt over how much I love eating cows, but... The, yeah. People think The Far Side is a comic, but it's really a horror. <laughs> it's a horror strip. Oh, man. So it'll be interesting to see if we do see like an instant increase in the price of pork. In Illinois, I likely won't. But in California, I bet I bet there will be a little bit of vindictiveness from those producers who are like, all right, bitches, here it's it costs $95 for a pound of pork now or whatever. Uh, but they do want to continue doing business in California. So there's a limit to how much of that they can do. And also... They will reach if they do. This is just like with Phil's cage free eggs. If they do increase their prices to be like, look, hey, this is a hardship for us. If they get to the same price point as a local farm or an organic product or whatever, then people are going to choose the one that is obviously better and is the same price. Yeah. And and so, that's the way it should be, right? So long as there's no yeah. pork cartel going on in California where everyone's raising their prices. Um, did you see the thing about Kingsford charcoal? No. So I guess some some whiz kid, uh, maybe maybe not a kid, maybe some whiz old man um, <laughs> at Kingsford uh, was like, you know what? We should raise the price of charcoal. This is how we're gonna make a just a you know shit ton of money. And everyone's like, yeah, let's do that. So Kingsford raised their prices. Uh, meanwhile, nobody else did. Uh, <laughs> and Kingsford, uh, their bottom line really took a hit. So they're like, guess what? We're going to lower the price of our charcoal <laughs> because people were looking at, oh, do I buy the $19 bag of Kingsford or do I buy the $8 bag of no brand, you know, yeah. whatever, um, red, red brick charcoal yeah they're yeah, like yeah. i'm gonna buy the eight dollar bag of charcoal because you know what it's gonna create heat and it's gonna cook my food man um, i made a mistake a couple of years ago i was a, i was part of this barbecue club called man and in preparations for a number of those uh events i started using lump hardwood charcoal and now i just can't go back <laughs> i bumped myself up into a different charcoal bracket uh this summer i'm about to do the exact same thing i w i have a um kamado joe smoker that i still have to put together and find a space for in my backyard but i've been both lazy because it's heavy it's a heavy thing it's got all these ceramic tiles in it and shit i've been lazy and also i've been trying to figure out exactly how our backyard is going to be oriented with all the plants we have out there and my daughter's trampoline and all this stuff and i don't want to set this extremely heavy thing up and then have to move it but once i have that thing up and running and i figure out how to use it i'm going to bump myself up into a higher smoker category and i'm not going to be able to go back to just being <laughs> like oh i'm going to take my weber and do a, a charcoal coil and smoke some stuff i'm not going to be able to do it and be like well i guess i'm smoking this brisket for 18 hours you know it'll be that thing <laughs> which is fine i've got the whole summer to play with it one of the things that i want to do so ladies and gentlemen i am now on this thing where i want to buy fewer things throw fewer things away and make more stuff, right? I'm 45 this year. And it's just occurred to me that like you can make all of this stuff, right? 
you don't have to buy it. <laughs> so I'm going to get onions and I'm going to get garlic and I'm going to get peppers and I'm going to smoke them at, at, at the lowest temperature I possibly can. I'm going to dehydrate them and I'm going to powder them and start making my own barbecue rub. Because you can do that. There's no rule against it, right? And that way I'll have complete control over what's in it. I'll be able to tailor the flavor for what I want. And uh, it's going to be awesome. Now, is it going to take me a long-ass time? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. But, like, I've had smoked spice rubs in the past, and they're all acrid. They all have, like, the wrong kind of a smoke flavor to them. So I need to figure out how to not do that. Because people who are better at this stuff than me are already doing it badly. So I need to figure <laughs> out how to not do it badly. And then, I don't know, maybe that goes into my side hustle. I can sell barbecue rub that doesn't taste like you know it was made over a gasoline fire <laughs> that doesn't uh, doesn't taste like by rub they meant like you accidentally boarded the red line train that no with no one in it thinking that there wasn't a uh, um, dead homeless person yes that, then you rub your meat on really quickly before yeah. ducking back out before the doors yeah. close trapping you in there yeah i mean there's a sweet smoke that you get from like slow hickory you know kind of a smoke and then there's that acrid smoke that's like when you first light a match like that sort of like it bites your nose kind of thing yeah. that's what you get out of a smoked barbecue rub or like i'm not going to call them out but there's a, a a place here in town that does excellent work with herbs and spices and stuff like that it's a, a shop that does just that their uh chicago barbecue rub they should have called it Chicago Fire because it just smells like an electrical like house burning down kind of a smoke. It's bad. And I made the mistake. like I bought some for myself, and I didn't use it, and I gave it to somebody else. And they were like, do you like this stuff? And I was like, oh, I didn't even try it. Why? And they were like, it's awful. So, well, throw it away. You don't need to use it on my account. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe I'll make my own. And I think adding the bell peppers to it is going to help because even dehydrated, they're going to retain their sweetness mellow out that smoke a little bit so what uh, what is in a smoked rub oh i don't know that's the best part so what i'm doing is i'm sort of basing it on what i would throw together out of my cupboard if i was just like putting a dry rub onto a pork shoulder to go into a smoker right so like i would normally do onion powder garlic powder pepper salt maybe cumin depending on how i was planning on serving it paprika for sure that's pretty much it. I'm going to start with that. So the paprika, I'm going to be using red bell peppers. Uh, the onion and garlic, I'm going to smoke those and dehydrate those. Black pepper is easy enough to put in later. Uh, and again, from that base, then I can do kind of whatever I want. Add other stuff in there. Nice. Yeah. So we'll see. Again, I'm, I'm setting myself up with a ton of projects this summer so that I can whittle them down. And as, as they don't work, <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to do that again. You know. <laughs> just because hey it's a year of experimentation all right so where do we go next do you want to talk about let's talk about king charles's car let right off the bat i want to say i don't give a shit about the british monarchy not even a little bit <laughs> when people in this country get all excited about the british monarchy i do want to say we fought a fucking war over this and we won ignore those pieces of shit <laughs> but nobody seems to care about that and there's all kind of television shows people here watch where they're like oh the monarchy I'm like all right great <laughs> i i sent a text to my dad i i don't even remember what it was about and uh 
he said, hey, it's something, something about the uh, the monarchy. He said, oh, did you get the king's permission or something like that? Um, I, I forget what it, what he texted me, and I was like, um, we, we don't we don't have to care about that. And he's like, uh, well, uh, um, th- his joke was that um, it, when I think he was trying to watch TV on the day of the uh, coronation and could not yeah. escape it. So he was like, uh, you know, all the all the news programs seemed to uh, beg to differ with you because, like, didn't we fight a war over that? And he was like, not according to the news. I think that's what it was. Um, so, uh, nice. yeah, he was in the same boat. He was like, I don't know why we're watching this. I was like, yeah, I didn't I didn't tune in. Um, I've been trying to come up with a good metaphor like this is like but it is the metaphor. This would be. So <laughs> let's say let's say that you're you're you get a divorce and your mother in law calls you up and yells at you. This is the metaphor for that. This is as though she's the queen of England and you're like, fuck you. I don't care about you. I don't have to care about you anymore. We fought a war over this. Yeah. This is the metaphor. However, you sent me this article, I think, from Food and Wine. Or did I send this to you? You sent it to me. Okay. King Charles drives a luxury vintage car. Right off the bat, I don't give a shit. uh, That runs on leftover wine and cheese. Now I'm back in. Yeah. In 2021, then Prince Charles. Now, also, like, how do you take yourself seriously if you're, like, 95 years old and you're only a prince? What is that? Uh, Revealed to the BBC that his Aston Martin MK2 DB6 Volante, damn it, which he received as a gift for his 21st birthday, had been converted to run on E85 bioethanol, which he produces on his Duchy of Cornwall estate. Uh, What do you know about E85, Steve? Because I don't know anything. Well, we have it over here. Um, it's uh, but it's all a uh, corn. It's made from corn, and so um, uh, most of the cars I think produced today um, are flex fuel or could be flex fuel. Um, I uh, have driven one. E eighty five is usually cheaper at the pump if you can find it. You can actually find it pretty easily around Chicago. But you have to have an engine that is specifically designed to burn this stuff, right? Uh, yes. And most, uh, at least over here, most, um, motors that were produced after 96 or 97 would burn ethanol, but the computer needs to be tweaked a little bit to get the right mix. And you also ah. need to make sure that all of your hoses that are, um, pumping the stuff because it, I think it's a little more corrosive or differently corrosive. So it reacts with different things. So you want to make sure that it's not going to eat through any of your, um, you know, gas lines or anything and make sure that it, your, it, your computer's programmed to recognize it so you get the right mix in the combustion chamber. But otherwise, most uh, engines over here can run on E85. Gotcha. So back to this article. According to The Guardian, the King's E85 is a mix of 85% bioethanol made from leftover wine, cheese whey, and 15% unleaded gas. Do you have to say unleaded anymore? Is there a gas with lead in it still? <laughs> I don't. Well, but you, you, but you have to look for it, and it's usually said uh, called leaded gas, ah, and okay. and uh, it can only be used in a very few things. So it does exist, but yeah, unleaded is you don't need it anymore. I wouldn't yeah. think. Uh, Don't worry, quote, don't worry, he's not wasting wine or cheese, as the wine used is not fit for human consumption, and the whey is merely a cheese byproduct. Have you ever had any British wine? Is any British wine fit for human (laughs) consumption? I don't know. Uh, I I don't know either. So, uh, quote, this was no easy conversion, nor did the Aston Martin team exactly welcome it. The engineers at Aston said, oh, it'll ruin the whole thing, Charles shared with the Telegraph. But the king wasn't taking no for an answer. I said, well, I won't drive it then, so they got on with it, and now they admit that it runs better and is more powerful on that fuel than it is on regular gas. 
The king also said, it smells delicious as you're driving along. I doubt that part. Because it's not like he's just, like, actually dumping wine into the gas tank. But I've never driven anything on E85. Maybe it smells like popcorn. That would be rad. Well, and the things, I guess, that are confusing to me, because I, and what I know is only a little bit anyway. But so over here, most of the ethanol is made from corn. Uh, b- because corn's high in sugar, and I th- and yeah. it's it's like an alcohol, right? And eth- yeah. ethanol is like an al- alcohol, so it's uh, um, basically you're running on uh, uh, corn corn whiskey. I don't know. Yeah, there you go. But it's, it's Everclear. It's, yeah, the the king is driving a car that runs on Everclear. <laughs> but his is made. I did not know you could make ethanol from wine and cheese byproducts. Um, so I don't, I, and that sounds more like, you know, a biodiesel, which you can, you know, if you have enough filters to get, filter the stuff out, pump the, uh, fryer into your car and, and run on that. Like the uh, biodiesel will run on like vegetable oil. Um, when I was at the burger place, we were approached by a company that would take our used fryer oil, convert it to a biodiesel and, we there was like a profit sharing model so the removal of the fryer oil was free to us and then there would be or there was a minimal charge and then there would potentially be a rebate throughout the year as they sold that stuff but i don't think we did it i don't recall if we did or not i was not involved in that (laughs) discussion anyway it wouldn't have changed anything we did because our oil just went into a bin in the back anyway so it would have just been a different company picking it up yeah yeah, so so it it reminds me a little bit of that if with yeah. the wine and cheese because I the like corn has to be refined, but also yeah. corn's not a liquid initially. So there's a lot of wineries over here. So why aren't we making ethanol from wine? And there's a lot of uh, cheeseries, <laughs> dairies. Yeah. yeah, in in you know in different parts of the country. So if if bio if E85 can be made from that stuff, why aren't we doing that instead of spending so much uh land area on corn which is also notoriously water you know thirsty um well now you're getting into discussions of lobbying and the farm bill and subsidies for corn and why we're still treating the farm bill like it it's just being copy pasted from 1975 yeah uh that's a whole separate thing that like the people who are lobbying in Washington for food interests are like the National Restaurant Association or a bunch of fucktards anyway because they just want to keep uh, not only the uh, wages low but the age at which you can work very low and they have nobody's best interest in mind and uh, big agriculture who they just don't want anything to change they want the government to keep subsidizing corn so that we can just have lots of corn I wish it was more complicated than that it really is not (laughs) <laughs> yeah i know again it's not so much so funny as it is sad because uh, and the, i still uh, think all lobbying should have a single page form that you have to hand in in person and if any lobbyist ever gives anybody who works in the government any money gift anything like that at all they're both fired instantly <laughs> yeah. like it's a one strike like you're Ted Cruz and you take a bunch of money from the National Restaurant Association to help keep wages low and keep 10-year-olds in McDonald's and the federal government just goes, you're fired. You can never work in public office again, you dumb fuck. Like that. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, in theory, you know, the voters f- fire the politicians, but they keep all of this so uh, obfuscated 
yeah. um, that it's difficult to uh, wend your way through. But yeah, yeah, it's a mess. And, and you're right. That is why. Because why would we be planting stuff to make ethanol when you can do it from byproducts? <laughs> that you have yeah. a byproduct from making cheese. Less waste that way. But nope, let's dump that into a river or whatever. Well, so you're absolutely right. There was uh, an article we covered a long time ago about... Was it a byproduct from... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was when uh, Oikos yes. Greek yogurt was producing so much Greek yogurt in upstate New York that their runoff or their effluence from the factory, which is sort of like a way, it's not the same thing, but it's similar, it changed the pH of like the groundwater in the area for this huge amount of space. Is that similar enough to cheese way that you could be making biodiesel out of it? I don't know. But, like, as opposed to just dumping it on the fucking ground, who, as an adult, is like, well, I've got all this extra stuff. I think I'm just going to dump it on the ground. Who thinks yeah. that way? Yeah. And and honestly, if him driving this classic, uh, semi-classic, it was gifted to him in 21. What year was the car? I don't remember. I don't um, know, but it's an Aston Martin. It's a James Bond car. Yes. So if, if the King of England driving this car is enough to uh, create some companies that are viable, that are creating uh, bio E85, um, then, you know, hey. And, and any, any anyone out there that's like uh, anti-electric vehicle, um, but also anti-E85, you're crazy. Like if you're anti-electric <laughs> vehicle, then you should be we should be pumping money into E85, which is renewable fuel with less emissions than uh, regular gasoline. But if you want, if you're like, oh, I gotta have combustion to have power, then E85 is where we need to be investing some money yeah. in renewable energy, not not uh, just the stuff we're pumping out of the ground. So um, soapbox descended. Well, and you're not wrong. The argument where people are like, well, electric cars just run on electricity generated by burning coal anyway, that's wrong. Uh, a lot of electric cars... <laughs> You know, there we do have a diversified network of energy production in this country. We have nuclear, we have yeah. um, hydroelectric, we have wind, we have solar, we have all these things. What the people who are proponing electric cars are saying is, let's not burn it like right next to us. You know, we can be get because we don't have a car. I remember when I was a kid, the University of Michigan made a viable car that had solar panels on top of it and just run forever. And then nothing ever happened with it because yeah. the auto industry and the oil industry are also stuck together. And so the car manufacturers aren't going to be like, yeah, we'll make a solar car because that the, the relationship between cars and oil is so strong. And so to have people push back against electric cars saying, well, the emissions are being produced anyway because we're burning coal to make that electricity. Yeah, but that is not the point the point is that if we can stop the emissions at any source that's a good thing so if you have a car that's running on electricity that may be coming from hydroelectric maybe coming from coal i don't know how many coal-fired electrical plants we still have it's better no matter what than having emissions coming out of a car yeah yes do you think um, speaking of that somewhere in France, there's like an Indiana Jones style warehouse, but n instead of the Ark of the Covenant, they have a car in there that runs on actual wine and actual cheese. <laughs> you just stuff them in like it, Mr. Fusion from yeah, Back to the Future. Yes. But <laughs> yes. they're like, no, we can't have this. Uh, people need to eat our cheese and drink Ooh. our wine. 
they've been suppressing it. The French are behind suppressing cheese cars. Yeah, we'd have a cheesemobile right now if it weren't for the French. They've yeah. hidden it away in some now, cheese cake. the next thing that would happen is folks who are lactose intolerant would come out against the cheese car and say they can't drive it because it makes them sick. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I It would be... Uh, I don't know if there's a great slogan for like people that are anti-electric car. I don't even know how big that segment is because um, Elon Musk is crazy enough that he's brought some people on board that are, um, you know, crazy. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like those that would be anti the cheesemobile would be lacked nose. Lacked no. Yeah. Yeah. Now, where would we fall on the debate between a cheese car and like a soy cheese car, because there would have to be a dairy-free alternative, yes, right? You would get yes. a soy cheese or an almond cheese, right? Like, and then the cheese car manufacturers would be like, "Well, you can't call that a cheese car. You have to call that like a dairy-free cheese car alternative or something." That that there you would know, be legislation about that. That is curious, though. I mean, if you're a vegan, you would not be able to drive the King's cheese and wine car, right? True. Yeah. The same way that there are vegans out there who don't wear leather because that doesn't fit within their ethos, right? You wouldn't be able to drive a cheese car if you're vegan. Yeah. So I guess you just walk, which is healthier anyway. Sure, sure, sure. But I mean, I, I can you imagine walking into a dealership and be like, show me your vegan cars? <laughs> so excellent segue, Steve. I just bought a car yesterday and I didn't want to. And I super had to, because we currently drive a Subaru that's 15 years old. Nobody has a car that's 15 years old unless you're the king of England. <laughs> and so it's like him and me. And uh, it's doing okay. Get into the car, it sounds a lot like my knees, right? A little creaky. <laughs> but it's going to die. And we're into that position now where it's like, when this car does die, it's going to die with no warning. And it's just going to explode. So we're like, okay, fine, we need a new car. We did buy another Subaru. And I feel pretty darn good about that. But the price gap between a straight-up car, not even a cheese car, but just a regular old gas car, and any sort of an EV is still shocking. Yeah. And that's what we wanted. We wanted something that was either intensely fuel-efficient or was an electric vehicle or a hybrid or something like that. And we simply could not afford it. I'm not crying poverty. We do okay. We couldn't afford any of those. And so to go into a dealership with also the requirement that my car be 100% vegan i can't even imagine what that would cost yeah like if you got a vegan ev I, why wouldn't you want leather seats that's just wild to me but to have that be a requirement like if i'm owning a car dealership anybody who comes in and says vegan i'm increasing the price by 40 percent, no matter what <laughs> just on principle oh and uh, uh speaking of food uh products and cars um I saw this thing the other day. It was a post maybe on Reddit and uh, learned that there are some tire manufacturers now who are – because you can make rubber with a soy byproduct oh. um, and some plastics. Like they've been doing like wire insulation, um, you know, around wires, electrical yeah, wires yeah. that uses a soy in it um, for a while now. But the problem is – uh, there are critters that like to eat that. <laughs> so someone sent a picture of their tires and like, what is this? And someone's like, that looks like a squirrel's been eating your your tire. Um, and then they're but they're like, nobody makes a tire with soy. And then they looked it up and like, nope, I'm wrong. Um, both Firestone and Goodyear have some tires that use the soy, whatever it is, in it. So they're making 
wow. cars or they're making tires that are edible or at least that make some animals want to uh, chew on them. Now, in the wires, they've had that problem with, too. I, I forget who it was. Maybe it was a politician, I think. Um, but they had stored one of their cars because they were in Washington, and then they went home to whatever state it was, and they tried to start their Silverado, and they couldn't because their a critter had chewed through all of the electrical wiring to get the soy <laughs> insulators off, you know. And it was, I mean, it basically totaled the car because to rerun yeah. the electrical wires throughout an entire car is, uh, you know, just crazy expensive. Um, so it's like, uh, we need to, <laughs> let's not make the car edible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm all for a lot of like integrated systems and reusables and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, no. Soy car? No, thank you. Yeah. I don't want, I don't want, especially squirrel. Like if, it, if it's going to be yeah. edible, edible, make it like, okay, a whale might eat this. That's okay. I'm not going <laughs> to drive on the ocean. If your car's made out of krill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that's, I'm fine with that. You know, I also don't want a car that dissolves in the rain. Right. You right. know, I'm, yeah. Recyclable. Great. Uh, biodegradable. No, not for my car. <laughs> you know, what's weird. I, I had a, I had an emotion yesterday. That took me off guard because we can't actually pick up our new car for two more weeks because it's currently being built. And that should make me really excited, right? Because, I mean, there is a dearth of new cars. Like, it's tough to buy a car right now. We just happened to be working with this dealership for about the past month, and we finally settled on what we want. And then they're going to get a shipment in right before the beginning of June. And so the guy was like, yep, it's, it's being finished up right now. It made me nervous. And I know buying a new car that, like, it had to have just been built. But, like, for me, I'm like, mm, I don't know why it makes me uncomfortable to think that, like, the car that I'm about to buy and drive currently is not completely assembled. Something about that <laughs> makes me a little afraid. Yeah. Like, what if they fuck it up? Yeah. And I should think that about any car. But I, in particular with this car, I'm like, mm, if they're still building it, what if they fuck it up right now? Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like how I don't ever worry about my parents. But as soon as one of them is coming to visit and they're on the road, I'm like, I hope they don't die. Yeah. <laughs> but like for most part, like for for all the time, I hope my parents don't die, but I'm not like actively worried about it. Yeah. But the fact that I, the car is currently being assembled, I'm like, what if somebody fucks that up right now? Yeah. And then there's part of me that's like, I should go and watch and make sure they do it right. Even though I know nothing about how to make a car. <laughs> that's the dad part of me. The dad part of me wants to go stand with my hands on my hips and watch them finish putting that car together. Is he, should he be doing that? Is he supposed to do that? And then, like, I would elbow him aside and be like, "No, no, no, let me do it. Let me, let me yeah, just let yeah. me fit that window in there or whatever." Yeah. You know, oh, you're gonna... I, again, knowing nothing. Yeah, you're gonna scratch it. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever. In two weeks, I'll have a new car, so I don't care. You know, living in Chicago, when because um, we bought, I bought, I think my first brand new car when we were living in Chicago. Um, there's a dealership there that I would not recommend. Um, not that I had a terrible experience; it just was super annoying. Um, but. Uh, I had to reconcile the fact that it was not going to remain pristine because I was yeah. parking on the street in Chicago. So it, it like with a new car, I'd be like, can you scratch it a little bit so that I just get that over with right now? And I don't have to see the first scratch when I get out to it and, and you know, throw a fit like breaking in a baseball glove, man. You got to rub some dirt in there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Get it. Yeah. Just get it over with. Pull the bandaid off fast. <laughs> Like hit, just bump a bumper when you're first park it after you get it, just straight right. out the gate. You know, like, okay, this is going to happen. We're going to, we're going to do it on purpose and be done with it. 
Whew. All right. So I would like us to finish up because I'm starting to get kind of twitchy because I'm really hungry and I've had nearly a pot of coffee today. So there's this <laughs> coffee place I've been talking about on the show for years called Taste of Columbia. It's on Montrose and Cicero in the northwest side of Chicago. Fucking everything they make is amazing. And the problem with me is that like I'll buy a pound of their Sumatra coffee and I'll make a pot and I'll be I, I just can't I can't not drink the whole pot. And then two hours later, I'm like, that was a mistake and I'm starving and I'm getting really twitchy. But aside from that. Let's finish up today talking about horses. And not like horses, yeah, but the Hollywood restaurant horses. Yes. I never heard of this restaurant in my life. But now there is a very public divorce going on between the two chef owners. And it's wild. And I don't... This is just like when we were talking about the fellow who was uh, disinvited from the Beards last week. I don't know anything about these people. Yeah. I don't even know how to say the one guy's last name. Yeah. What I do know is that when you run a super popular restaurant in Hollywood and you have a super messy divorce, uh, whew, everything comes out. And uh, <laughs> it, this this has gotten wild. So this is from Eater, Los Angeles. New allegations emerge about the work environment at Hollywood's Horses Restaurant. First off, Steve, I just want to say once again for the record, people who name restaurants need to have other people look at the name before they go for it who the fuck names a restaurant horses well i unless it's like this used to be an old horse an old horse barn or they used to make saddles or i mean unless there's a really good reason yeah nothing about horses makes me go like oh i'm hungry <laughs> also if they do not serve horse meat there false fucking advertising yes right so new information has surfaced in the divorce between horses co-chef owners will Agajanian? I'm sorry. I'm saying that wrong, I'm sure. And Liz Johnson. One day after the LA Times first broke the story, uh, The Hollywood Reporter has published additional details from the restraining order filings, including alleged accounts of how workers at horses were affected by the owners as they were compelled to work on the same premises. So what I understand is that Will... So Liz filed for divorce from Will. Will has been not allowed on the premises since November of last year. So this has been going on for a bit. And um, there was a staff walkout at one point. Employees have threatened to quit. Uh, in the divorce filings, um, Johnson has asked that Will... Uh, there's the restraining order so that he has to stay away from her and their three dogs because there's an allegation that he killed several of their cats. Like, it is wild. It yeah. is absolutely wild. And here's the thing about this one, I think, that makes it sort of unique. Um, it, well, you'd let me know if it's unique. It seems like it would be, but I'm not 100% sure on this. That they are both chefs at the place. It's not like one is running back of house and one is running front of house. Is it is it not more common when you have a uh, restaurant run by a married couple that one would be front of house and one would be back of house versus both of them being back of house? That's been my experience. What I have seen is that it tends to get broken up that way where you've got a chef owner and you have a front of the house owner and that's the married couple and that's – it still doesn't work. It's still a terrible idea. Yes, but that's yes. what I've seen more often than not. But this – they're both – so initially like they could both be at the restaurant even with the restraining orders because they both had to work there. Yeah. But they're both in the kitchen. I mean and kitchens yeah. are notoriously not that much space. So you – you know <laughs> – 
<laughs> bumping into the person that you're filed from divorce from every now and again as you're walking behind them, maybe bumping them a little too hard because of uh, some pent up whatever. Um, yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, I can't imagine even this picture, which I presume was taken when times were better. Uh, the guy in the middle looks really uncomfortable. The guy standing between the <laughs> right. two doesn't look like, and and he's uh, uh, he also has a drink. He, it looks a little bit to me like uh, um, Dimaggio, who voices Bender on on Futurama. Yeah. Um, but uh, he's like, I don't want to be here. Um, <laughs> right. Is right. is my uh, interpretation of that? Just having read the article. So um, the published filings. Johnson's filings allege that when Will appeared on the premises in November 2022, which would be after the restraining order was filed, the entire staff walked out in protest. Liz went on to further describe the tension at horses. Quote, people at our workplace say he has become manic before saying one employee threatened to quit. Uh, she alleges that Will cornered an employee in order to find out where Liz was and what she had told them. She also said Will threatened to kill himself and that she was fearful he would hurt someone. Uh, I mean... I'm inclined to believe all this because people in my industry are fucking crazy. And so if you're crazy and you're married, I, either way, like I bet both of these people are crazy, but I don't have anything to back that up necessarily. If you're crazy and you're married to someone who's crazy and you're working in a restaurant, which is also crazy, and you're in that pressure cooker all the time. Yeah. I can believe all of this. This is a mess. This is a prime example of why you don't mix family and business. Uh They've been super successful, so at some point this must have worked out fucking great. But, like, I believe every... And so he's counter-suing, counter-filing, whatever, uh, that he claims that she called him a coward uh, to, like, urge him on to come in and violate the restraining order. She... He alleges that she said to employees, this is my house, um... Also saying that she told the staff that he was a sex addict and an animal abuser. Like, it's all this enormous he said, she said stuff. I'll be honest. I believe both of them. I think <laughs> they're both. Um, like like I said, family and business, terrible idea. Terrible mix. Always a terrible mix. This is going to get better before it gets worse. And I my, my thoughts and prayers for what they're worth, which is zero, goes out to the staff that are there. Could you imagine being caught in the middle of that? No. And that's, that's I think, the, the crazy thing because it, uh, further down it says the Daily Beast reported on the filings mentioned multiple incidents of abusive behavior going back to 2019. So, yeah. you know, th- it, it's like being in a um, um, uh, uh, a home that's, you know, just this madhouse for yeah. how I, – I mean, do they have – have they had turnover? Are there people that have been living with this since – before 2019, if the reports of the behavior go back to 2019, surely the behavior goes back further. Um, so the fact that they very specifically said one employee threatened to quit indicates to me that they don't have a lot of turnover. Like, that's an, that's a very strong thing to say. Like, right. yeah, and this one guy said he was going to quit. If people were quitting left and right, you wouldn't point that out. So I bet they do have good staff retention, but you're right. My industry is still rife with people just sort of behaving in whatever bonkers way they want to and then going, you have to be tough. You have to accept this kind of abuse. That is only going to get accelerated when the two chef co-owners who are married to each other start griping at each other and start getting divorced in a real messy way. Yeah. I feel bad for that staff. For sure. And okay, so I'm looking at it. So the reports between the two, I guess, since go go back to 2019, but the restaurant's only been there since 2021. 
right? Since opening in 2021, Horses, which is also co-owned by first-time restaurateur Stephanie, or rather Stephen Light, um, had been lauded by critics and popular among the C and B scene crowd in LA. Right. So I wonder if they came from some other place that they had. Yeah, I don't know. It could be. But uh, they the place has to have been dysfunctional from the beginning. Um, in, in some ways, and and maybe you you know it's one of those things that maybe you laugh off at first. It's like, oh wow, the chef really you know is pretty harsh with his wife, um, uh, right? When he's joking around, and then then you find out, oh no, they're not joking around at all. They really you know, and then the uh, the reports there were reports which have been denied that uh, um, there. Uh, had been that there was some kind of connection to Ken Friedman, the disgraced yeah. former owner of Spotted Pig, whom we talked about a while ago. Yeah. Um, but they said that he was not involved in any way. But yeah, just it, it's it, there's just so much bad energy around this place. So it looks like the abuse that's being reported going back to 2019 comes from a different restaurant in Tennessee called Catbird Seat. Okay, and then they <laughs> another moved great name to right. They moved to L.A. to open up this place, uh, Horses, in September of 2021. That's a fast turn to go from September of 2021 opening a restaurant together to October of 2022 getting divorced and having uh, restraining orders filed. Yeah. I mean, in the restaurant industry is – I don't know why I can't enunciate today – um, I in the restaurant industry, is there a stigma sort of like there is with comics? Um, like, uh, even, even at second city, um, when I was at second city, there seemed to be an idea that unless you had some sort of tragic background, um, you couldn't be a good comic. So unless like you hated your parents or your parents beat you, you couldn't be a good comic. Yeah. Is there a, a is there an allegory in the restaurant industry where it's like unless unless you are this tortured soul, you can't be a good chef, and that's why we're gonna take these people that probably are abusive to each other in Tennessee and bring them to L.A. to open a restaurant, or is it just overlooked because like we talked about before? But the food. It's a bit of both. So there is this, like, I'm always suspicious of anybody who says that they're an artist when they say they're a chef. Like, Food is my art. Eh, go fuck yourself. Uh, because then they're leaning fairly heavily on that old adage, which is that the difference between art, uh, like artistic nature and madness is very slim, right? <laughs> which is fine. And there have been some artists who were fantastic, who were crazy, but like, you can't use that as an excuse. You can't be like, well, yes, I'm a rat bastard to all the people around me. It's because I'm an artist. No, that's because you're a bad person, right? So that's a different thing entirely. If someone has a lot of passion for what they do and they're very exacting and they're very demanding and all of this kind of stuff, maybe they produce better food. That's fine. You can still be a terrible chef. We talked about this last week. But drama produces press, which produces uh, butts and seats. Right? Like, that's yeah. how you get people into your restaurant. In this article, there were people talking about how I've never been to this restaurant before. I've never heard of it. I'm here because I want to see the chefs yell at each other. There's a certain there's a certain drama to it. There's a certain show to it. And if, like, if we can be, if we can believe that Ken Friedman is involved in it, yeah, that's exactly the kind of stuff that that guy did, right? Like, that's the world he lived in at Spotted Pig and working with Batali and all that was just like, all press is good press. And so do you need to be a complete piece of shit 
to be a good, successful chef. Absolutely not. Are those the ones who get the press and who get money thrown at them by investors who don't care that they're abusing their cooks and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, kind of. Like if you're just a rad dude and you or uh, female chef or whatever, and you are really good cook and you're a really good manager of people and all this kind of stuff, and you run a really quiet, successful, awesome restaurant, is that going to generate the kind of press that gets you investors? Probably not. Yeah. Well, and it is sad that, and you're right, that people are like, well, why go to such and such a place for dinner when we can go to horses and get dinner and a show? Yeah. Um, because it's, it's uh, you know, yeah, it might be reality, the show, but it's it goes back to the menu where he shoot, shoots his shoot, sous chef. Yeah. <laughs> I keep walking into tongue twisters accidentally. <laughs> he shoots his sous chef and they're like, oh, it's, just, it's part of the performance. Yeah. Um, and it's like, no, he just killed somebody in front of you and you're yeah. going to happily eat there because you got to see something. Um, yeah. Can we stay away from these places? Like if someone is abusing someone else in the restaurant, it's not entertainment for you. It's just bad all the way around. Stay away. <laughs> Well, and that's why I applaud the James Beard Foundation for the move that they made this year. And whether or not they're applying it fairly or how it's being done or what sort of investigations are being conducted and that sort of thing. If the James Beard Foundation is saying, look, we are done celebrating people who, yeah, they make great fucking food. They're awful people and they abuse their staff and they don't pay them enough and their work environment is terrible. We're not giving them awards anymore. If that's what's happening... And that can start to be a sea change. I applaud them. Absolutely. Now, they better be careful and they better be doing their due diligence and they better be doing interviews and investigations and stuff like that. And do we see fewer beard awards? Yeah, I sure hope so. Yeah. And do we see them being applied to people who are better at the whole job of being a chef? I hope so. Yes, I agree. And, it, and you know what? The James Beard Foundation, if it turns out that a chef they gave an award to is abusive, maybe the James Beard Award goes, fuck you, give it back. Yeah. That would be rad, too. And the award is going to mean more at the end of the day um, yeah. than it does now. And it does seem, um, just with some recent things that I've seen, that it's uh, that their code of ethics and, and that sort of thing is a rather new addition yeah. um, to uh, trying to reform sort of the, that whole system. And yeah, I, I applaud it. And uh, I really hope the kinks get worked out. And I think we should, I guess, expect some kinks as they're kind of working through yeah. um, how all of this works. So, uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you 100% on all of that. We're not going to get a code of ethics from the International Association of Culinary Professionals. We're not going to get a code of ethics from the National Restaurant Association, which is apparently fucking rat bastards anyway. Yeah. The fact that it's essentially the Oscars of restaurants has to be the one to go, you know, y'all should be nicer. Yeah. That's shocking. It's very American and it's very dumb, but it will probably work to a certain degree. Yeah. Right. Where maybe investors are looking at places that have won James Beard Awards and they're going, I'm going to invest in that place, knowing the James Beard Award actually means something now. It actually means this is someone who can manage their staff, manage their food cost, manage their business, and all of those things will translate into money anyway, and less volatility. Maybe less drama, but less volatility. If that looks good to an investor, maybe the James Beard Awards having a code of ethics that they enforce does help, does change things. Yeah. I'm all for that. Yeah, I agree. And we're back. <laughs> yeah. I think we should wrap this up so I can get something to eat and I don't have to spend 40 hours editing this for all of our tech issues. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So anything else you want to talk through today, Steve? I'm good. 
All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, I always forget to do this at the top of the show, but if you have anything to add to our discussion, easiest way to get a hold of us is in the weeds wbr at gmail.com. Uh, my Instagram, which I mentioned earlier, is Chef Ben Randall. We have a Facebook page and a Facebook group if you just look for In the Weeds with Ben Randall, and Steve runs a website for us. In the Weeds WBR.com. Where you'll find all the articles that we mention and reference and talk in, you know, so broad terms about. You can get a lot more information from those uh, there. Mm hmm. Yeah. We do have a couple of bits of listener feedback that I have yet to figure out how to loop into an episode that I've just been sort of sitting on, but we will get to those fairly soon. Awesome. All right. Well, I, it's now suddenly almost summer in Chicago, so I am going to get some food and I'm going to go spend some time outside. Nice. Steve, always a pleasure. For In the Weeds of Ben Randall, I am Ben Randall. And I'm Stephen Cadwell. Talk at you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>